Hey, Rob here, and this episode of the Crooked Table Podcast is sponsored by Audible. Of course, this year we're journeying through the wizarding world of Harry Potter, and one of the very best ways to experience the book series is through the incredible audiobooks performed by Jim Dale. Audible has the entire series and so much more just waiting for you. To check out thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, and other spoken word entertainment, start your free 30-day trial today over at audibletrial.com slash crooked table. That's audibletrial.com slash crooked table. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers. If you can drop us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. And this episode, we're continuing our year-long journey through the wizarding world of Harry Potter. And this episode, I am honored to welcome back to the show, Amy Otero. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure. I'm so glad to be back. So last time we talked about the witch, and now we're talking about uh, boy wizards and witches. Mm-hmm. And girl witches, I guess. Uh, so, what is your experience with before we get to Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the focus of this mm-hmm. episode? What is your experience with the Harry Potter book and or movie series? Um, well, I started teaching high school in two thousand, and um, it was. I remember when I was. Right, I guess I like 1999. I was an assistant teacher, and I was working on getting my additional credentials so that I could certify to teach. And um, you know, I was taking these teach. You know, the, the I mean, I have a degree in English, but I you know I went into the College of Education to get these extra credentials teaching English. You know, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. to high school kids and to get certified. And Harry Potter had just happened. Um, and so it was, there was a buzz. There was like a general buzz around like, you know, English departments. Uh, I'm assuming not just, you know, USF, but English departments in general, because, you know, all of a sudden um, kids were reading books. Like and they were like, well, what is this book? And everybody, you know, and it was just, it, it was just something that just kind of lit up. And I remember it, it, it just, by the time I got into my own classroom in front of my own English students, in 2000 to and then into 2001 they were already talking about it and um into my second and third year of teaching you know these same kids that i knew as freshmen who would come to school and talk about the chapters that they had read you have to understand i'm an english teacher Mm. most of your um experiences convincing kids to read and then really trying to get them to talk about it and that's never been something that kids typically feel comfortable comfortable about but yet this was going on unsolicited by any adult you know and it was uh just phenomenal i mean i was paying attention i mean i mean i my students were going and spending their friday night waiting in line outside of barnes and noble for the next installment 
And so I, at that point in my life, <clears throat> I didn't start reading the books. The movie had rolled out and I was just so busy and my, I was a brand new teacher and I just was learning how to be a teacher and, and how to teach literature and all of these things and not just study it, but to teach it. And uh, <laughs> I never really had time to sit down and give the books the attention that they deserve. So I kind of relied on the movie. I came back to the books uh, later on in the form of audiobook, I would listen to the books. And I have still have not gotten through the entire series because in amongst all that, I had my own children. Um, but it's very difficult to go back to your original question. It's very difficult for me to consider and to look back on my teaching career and not consider Harry Potter and the saga to be an integral part of it, even though I never taught the book never assigned it, nothing like that. Uh, I do ask my AP Lit kids to familiarize themselves with contemporary epic sagas so that we can refer to them. Harry Potter is one of those. Uh, so is the Tolkien franchise and, and even Avatar Last Airbender. I, you know. But so, yeah, so I, Harry Potter, the kids brought Harry Potter to me. Mm -hmm. The kids made it interesting. The, the, the students made it relevant. And the students decided it was important. And it's, I think the coolest thing about that, that altogether, I'm using, I'm so sorry. Is yeah, that, it's fine, that, it's fine, go for it. That was what the books, and that, that's what the story, I'm going to refer to them as stories. I don't, I obviously don't feel comfortable referring to the books. I don't know them to, you know, to any level that I feel comfortable being able to discuss them. But the stories as I'm familiar with, how much of it is about that the student you know, and and ha being empowered and deciding for yourself what is true and what is right. You know, and I think it was just a really awesome time in the collective where kids got to decide this is what's important to us. And they made it important. And I remember sitting in an English teacher, you know, you know, a, you know, AP lit English teacher meetings where we would all decide, you know, what was literary canon and wasn't and what we would be willing to let the kids read and not and all of this and, and I'm over here, over here always thinking just let the kids read you know mm -hmm. but there was always that argument oh well Harry Potter isn't this and it isn't that and I said well it's hard for you to see that now but I don't think you can make that argument in years from now when we look back and we look at the body of work and we look at how it existed in the time that it existed in, how it affected audiences, how audiences affected it. I mean, I'm sorry. I think they say about J.K. Rowling the same thing they've always said about Tolkien. And it's just that the, you know, the priesthood of literature doesn't like fantasy. Firstly, I mean, I agree. I, I know there was a lot of conversation as these books were were you know, part of the, I mean, it still are, but as the books were really part of the cultural phenomenon, uh, I think people now maybe forget how huge these were, that people were like, now we're in the age of everybody's just pre-ordering things on Amazon. Yeah. Barnes and Noble is essentially gone. Uh, well, still there, but Borders is gone. Barnes and Noble is definitely downgraded. It's, and and it's don't, important. don't you think the whole Barnes and Noble phenomenon was directly influenced by Harry Potter? hundred percent. For me to see it, for me to believe that Barnes and Noble could have been the successful empire it has become or was without Harry Potter, right. I just don't think I don't buy it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, and there was uh, there was already that big conversation of well, well, are these, are these appropriate for us to teach in class or for a reading right. list? Because of 
I don't know, because of the, the occult or the witchcraft involved, which is just like, okay, um, sure. Uh, or like the fact that the kids are, are, you know, disobedient, they like rebellious, like there's a whole, there's a whole uh, anti-authority mm-hmm. theme going throughout, especially in this one, I would say. Uh, but I mean, it's also yeah. righteous rebellion. It's not less like, right. I don't know. I, I think it depends on what kind of lesson you're trying to teach t- to children. Uh, and we'll get into whether this movie, uh, what this movie has to say about rebelling against authority, because it has it's it has the most blatant kind of totalitarian regime taking over uh, uh, Hogwarts in this movie. Uh, but I yeah, I agree with you on not only the impact of the series, but also um, also how it, it is it is relevant. I mean, even it, it's been it's made itself relevant. Like you said, the fans made it relevant. So it's even if you you don't necessarily considered on the letter on the level of some other like classic literature, it has been such a huge impact that it's kind of it's kind of one of those things that you know I'm a movie I'm a movie guy obviously so. I've sat through the five Twilight movies and watched them all because I needed to form an opinion because they were such a, they were like everywhere. It was inescapable and they made hundreds of millions of dollars each, each installment. So it's one of those things that you need to read simply because it's such a uh, critical part of the lexicon, whether it's like a a high art or whatever, that kind of thing could be argued, I guess. But Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, yeah, it it doesn't make, it's like saying, Oh, Jurassic park. That's not, no, that's a big blockbuster. That's not something worth your time. I'm like, is it, is it, since who made that decision? Um, yeah. So I, I agree with you on all of that. And, uh, just another thought on the audiobooks. I experienced uh, most of them through audiobook as well. And those are, that's such a fun way to, to listen to these stories because of, um, because of the performance, I think it's Jim Dale that does the voices for pretty much every character. That's he right. does such a great job performing it. It's it's a it's a it's a, a very unique way of of uh, taking in these stories for the first time. Yeah, we can kind of transition into the movie itself. Uh, did you have any any thoughts on well you, you on the movies versus the books? I guess you don't. It's been a while since you looked back well, at the books, I had right? A question. Yes. You know, I, was, I, I watched it last night mm-hmm. again with, and my husband watched it with me. And my husband has been reading the books to my to our son um, for years now. I think they're on book five. Um, I think they just finished book four. Nice. And um, I asked him. I said, I, I the, one of the things I've noticed with every movie is a certain structure, regardless of who the director is. There's a there's a structure to each movie that I wonder I, if the books if that was borrowed from the books and what I mean by that is that so we get to as the audience we get to experience the magical world through Harry's eyes right it's mm-hmm. not like in Lord of the Rings where it's established that we're already a citizen of Middle Earth right and right. and we are we're watching the world we've always lived in it's established that it's assumed that the audience. Is familiar with all of this, um, but with Harry Potter, the audience, uh, with the ver- with the exception of the very beginning, um, where you know we learn that that we learn we are introduced to Hagrid, and we learn that Harry is an infant at this point. He has a magical destiny, and he's special, and all those things. And they put him with the Dursleys. That's the only time we're kind of like omnipotent as an audience. From that moment on, our perspective primarily shifts to that of Harry's. So we get to experience his experience with the magical world. 
And it starts off obviously very limited in scope, right? Like in the first movie, he has the interaction with the snake. What did I just do? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, and from that moment, it kind of pulses outward with like every movie at the beginning of every movie, there's there's kind of like a, a deliberate expansion of the magical universe from Harry's perspective. And so and his and his reactions are always like, wow, oh, my God, I never knew this was here before. This is amazing. Like I'm thinking of like when he goes and sees the Dursleys and learns how magical folk have lived and learns about flu travel. And then in the third one, he has the magic, bu- the, the night bus experience right. and, and has no idea that even existed. And then in the fourth one, he goes to the Quidditch World Cup and like the universe is immense. Right. And in the fifth one, he they take him to, um, you know, to to Sirius's ancestral home. And there's the whole opening of the building and the reality that, you know, this witch reality has coexisted among the muggle reality this whole time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, I noticed that I've noticed that with the movies and I've just always wondered, does the book, is that from, is that borrowed from the book? I mean, in either way, it doesn't, it doesn't really ultimately matter because I think it has always enriched the experience for me as a viewer, getting to experience how awesome the magical world is with every installment of the story. I be- I believe it. I, I, to my knowledge, it is, it is true to the books. I think, uh, and I think it works uh, for a, a couple of reasons. One, I think it works for JK Rowling who hasn't necessarily developed certain corners right. of the magical world yet. So right. she can delay it until the next one. Right. And then have Harry be like, oh, wow, this was here the whole time. And I'm just mm-hmm. now learning about it. It's almost as if the author just came up with it for this book. <laughs> um, so from a creative standpoint, I think it works that way. But then also the whole arc of these movies is supposed to be Harry sort of it, it's a, an extended metaphor for adolescence, right? For coming of right. age, for journeying from being a child to at the end, can taking can, taking control of your destiny facing your literal arch nemesis, whatever that is, your demons. It's kind of similar to things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and stuff like that, where it's it's just um, fantasy manifestations of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think from that perspective, him sort of discovering how big the world is as he gets older each year, I think works in tandem with that, uh, with that concept, as does, and you really see that, I think, in this one, the gradual stripping away of his, his uh, parental figures. And also, I would argue that this film is the last time that structure exists. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't the, the whole build up to the, you know the, the, that that initial expansion of the magical universe at the beginning of every film. I don't think that happens in the pre in the in the in the movies after. And I think that's be, I think that's that says something about the structure of the entire saga because I look at this installment. I look at Order of the Phoenix as the descent. If we're looking at Harry as the hero and we're following, you know, the monomythic hero journey, all that, the previous movies, all the, the, the awe and the enthusiasm and the wonder, that stops after this point. That mm-hmm. innocence that allowed Harry to see the world with those fresh eyes every single time is done by the time we we finish this installment like this is a real descent for him so it's not just i mean that's the way i see the film working with all the rest of the stories 
Um, I see it's a descent for the civilization that they're living in, and it's a descent for him. I, w- I would argue that the that the previous one um, is actually more the loss of innocence uh, because it does have that turning point. The, the whole I talked about this. I actually had my brother on the podcast to talk about the last the Goblet of Fire uh, because he was mm-hmm. really big into the books when they were coming out and sort of got uh, got us into the franchise. Um, that you know that whole movie it, it, it pretends to be something else until the end like you realize you think you're watching mm-hmm. oh it's another adventure and then the triwizard tournament and there's another mystery about who, who put his name in the cup that kind of thing and then you realize at the end like oh no this was all about Voldemort coming back that the whole like you're watching an entirely different movie than what you thought you were watching basically uh and so that's that's and I mentioned it, I mentioned this like, I don't know, half a dozen times in the last episode. That's, that's really the turning point of the whole franchise. Like from there on, on in, it becomes much more serialized. It becomes much more cohesive and it's all mm-hmm. driving towards Harry yeah. and Voldemort and that, you know, the fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, I think we're in the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. I think he's in the, this whole thing feels very, you know, like I said, mythically underworld. Yeah. Um, and he's wandering through it. And, it, you know, it comes to the point for every hero in that stage of that stage of the that phase of the journey. It's will they return and the manner in which they'll return and what will they bring with them from that darkness? We don't know. Right. Like that's right. a different that that manifests differently for every hero in every story. So we're at that very and he's at that very pivotal place where he doesn't even understand what what is his purpose? What is he supposed to do? Mm-hmm. You know, those conversations he has with Luna, I think, are very I like those. I think I think yeah. they're very endearing. And I think that they are I like I like the function of her character very much in this story. Yeah, I do too. I feel like now we, we should transition into the actual into the movie because we're kind of talking about it already. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix right now. The Ministry of Magic is pleased to announce the appointment of Dolores Jane Umbridge as High Inquisitor to address the falling standards at Hogwarts School. Things at Hogwarts are far worse than I feared. that a certain dark wizard is at large. This is a lie. It's not a lie. I saw it. We've got to be able to defend ourselves. And if Umbridge refuses to teach us how, we need someone who will. Every great wizard in history has started out as nothing more than what we are now. If they can do it, why not us? It's sort of exciting, isn't it? Stupefy! Breaking the rules. Who are you and what have you done with the Hermione Granger? That was a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix from 2007. This is obviously the first one directed by David Yates, the first of six consecutive movies uh, in the Wizarding World, now counting the Fantastic Beasts movies that he's directed. Uh, What do you think about him as a director and what he brings to this property? Do you think that was the right call for the franchise to make the you know he made this movie and then they're just like all right we're going to sign you on for the rest of it to have that to have that consistency or does it lose something from from uh you know remaining i guess air quotes uh visually stagnant 
So you're referring to the Fantastic Beasts franchise? He well, obviously I mean, directed yeah. those. And okay, um, I really have yet to make up my mind about that franchise. Um, I, I, I kind of I like this director, and I've never really considered his his directing style. And I ha- I just don't feel you know all that confident to be able to talk about like choices that he's made and things like that. Right. I do like the work that he did with the rest of the Harry Potter saga. Um, I did expect uh, something very different with the um, Fantastic Beats, Beasts, uh, but I'm not sure if I've found my groove with it. Yeah. You know? I feel like I most people being, haven't found their groove with this. Over, sometimes I think I'm just being over. So my daughter loves it. She's 15. She thinks it's great. And she loves the, I mean, she doesn't, maybe her eyes are fresher than, maybe she's, maybe she's less sentimental than me and she's not projecting anything onto it. Mm-hmm. But I, um, part of the charm for the of these stories for me has always been Hogwarts, and I I miss a magical story without Hogwarts in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, agree. I really do. It just feels like there's something missing for me. But you know, I'm a school nerd, so that's <laughs> probably part of that. <laughs> well, I think also, I think if they were going to make a, a break at any point in the Harry Potter franchise to to have a consistent director i feel like this is that point you know okay because the first two were done by chris columbus uh um <coughs> alfonso Cuarón did uh, a prisoner of azkaban and then mike newell did uh goblet of fire but from five six seven eight now this is all david yates Got and it. i think if you were going to do that this is the place to do it because it does these last four movies feel very much of a piece in a way that the previous four don't really like right. the, the first four feel much more episodic to me Mm-hmm. Um, I think one and two obviously feel very similar because of the same filmmaker. Um, and they're also the most kid friendly of the stories. Like at this point, these are, these are not kid movies anymore. No. Um, I mean, pretty, pretty blatantly. And um, so, so yeah, so that was just something I wanted to make note of that David Yates now from here on in becomes the steward of the Harry Potter franchise. Uh, right. I love the way that this movie opens. Um, I love that it opens with, Harry sort of sitting alone in a park, very reflective, kind of watching like, uh, you know, a parent and child interaction longingly and, and, you know, thinking back on what happened with Cedric. And he's dealing with more PTSD than usual. Uh, we get the Dursleys back and, and Dudley uh, and him confront some Dementors. What, how do you feel about the opening of this movie and the fact that it it feels like it it already feels from the opening shots it feels like you're in a much darker place like oh, there's yeah. no there's no whimsy like the previous four no. start with it's very stark it's very um it looks like the worst of urban sprawl almost you mm-hmm. know what i mean like it just looks like just like a vacant lot he's sitting in the middle of like it's almost dystopic to me you know and and when and when dudley after the mother and child leave, when you know when Dudley and his crew wander up, it's like I imagine kind of like one of those you know dystopic post-apocalyptic films where you've got like the lone hero and he kind of gets accosted by a gang of like you know mutants kind of thing. Yeah. Like it, it had that same kind of feeling, like you know that invasive. But it's it's just a hope. It's just hopeless. The first scene just sets such a hopeless tone. I think it also is also um, building to the overlapping of the magical and muggle worlds. I mean, you're, you're seeing in here the first right. instance of 
Dementor is in the real world. You see him, Harry take out his wand and threaten Dudley with it. Of course, his friends are like, what the hell is this kid doing? <laughs> What's he going to do? He's got, well, he's got a stick, basically. Right. Uh, so Because they have no context, obviously. Uh, and then, you know, he's trapped in uh, in his in the Dursley's home. And once again, needs to be broken free. It kind of happens every year, I guess. Um, and you have them flying brooms over London. Uh, the first time, again, that we've seen any sort of magic outside of, you know, Hogsmeade, Hogwarts, like the very dis- distinctive uh, magical landscapes that we're used to. And I think that really sets the stage for the next one where that that comes, I believe it's like the very beginning of Half-Blood Prince where there's like these news reports that like, oh, you know, the Death Eaters like destroyed this random major bridge in England. Like they're, they're just become straight up terrorists by the next one. So I think that's an interesting progression that this movie sort of uh, planting the seed for. Yeah, absolutely. And then when they arrive at Sirius, like I said, Sirius's house is literally inside, you know, this whole world is existing. The Order of the Phoenix is meeting inside this muggle duplex or whatever you call them. It's, <laughs> it's very much, yeah. Yeah, where the, where the the veil is very thin between the worlds at that point. And that's the point where you feel like almost, you start to feel very vulnerable, I think. And I think like it's the imminent threat of Voldemort and the Death Eaters is just that much more real because you know at the same time the ministry is, you know, centralized leadership is failing at its job. It's obviously corrupt. It can't provide any <laughs> What's that like? Real and it can't, it can't provide any real information for anyone, and it certainly isn't going to be able to protect anyone. And it is very much a moment that you kind of feel like, gosh, it's 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 every man for himself. Like you really have to just kind of rely on forming these secret societies and things like that for for an attempt to keep yourself and your people, the people that you love, protected. And we were talking about how it was so relevant, and I was watching it, and I thought, you know, the thing about right now, and I'm I have no. I have no, I will not politicize your show in any way. I think you can definitely make an argument that with as divided as we are right now, both sides are afraid of the same thing. And the same thing is this authoritarian, you know, government that's going to come and make you change fundamentally everything about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, how is the, I mean, the movie is like clearly relevant for that. I mean, both sides right now feel like the very same thing is happening right. to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I think that maybe that's part of maybe because that inherent darkness is part of why for a long time, uh, this is one of the Harry Potter movies. I actually ranked the lowest so Um, now in the rewatch i was i I was experiencing it on a whole nother on a whole other level that i hadn't previously like i i i you know i never thought it was a bad movie but it's also the only one that's written by a a different person all the other ones steve close did wrote all of the other seven movies and this one has uh what's michael goldenberg only did this one movie uh, because I think Steve Cloves needed a break in the middle of the franchise. Um, and, and I think it, it felt a little, it felt off to me in some ways, but watching it now, I'm like, maybe I was just resistant to how like, like potent and sort of rich the material is, right. uh, because that's, you know, you're, people are always saying, Oh, you know, don't bring politics into, into star Wars um, or, or, or Harry, Harry Potter, you know, these franchises that are about 
the tyranny and fighting. I mean, it's like, how do you not? Right. It's, it's baked into the premise of most good sci-fi horror fantasy. I mean, that's kind of there is there are there's a statement whether the filmmaker intends it or not. There's a statement being made. And I think sure, of course. in this one, it is very much intentional uh, that they are they are, you know, drawing that sort of allegory uh, between real life governments and uh, and the ministry's interference in uh, in Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I think that, again, leads back to what I was saying earlier about how these stories benefit from Harry being sort of in the dark about all of this. Like he doesn't discover the order of the Phoenix until now. And so neither do we, uh, he doesn't meet Nymphadora Tonks or Kingsley Shacklebolt or all these other characters who show up here for the, the real mad eyed Moody, uh, who show up here for the, really the first time until this point, until it, it becomes sort of a, um, sort of a desperation to, to, you know, all hands on deck, kind of deal uh right. that, that and they, they make that very blatant in the beginning of the movie you know mrs weasley is like oh you know we can't tell him these things he's a child that kind of thing and it's sort of him rising up he has that great moment at the table with everyone where they're explaining the situation and harry is like and and uh mrs weasley who julie walters is great and, and even when she has very little material to work with she's just sells it completely yeah she's wonderful she i think she gets underrated uh in these movies just because she doesn't a lot of times have that much to do, but even little moments with Harry in, in this film, I think uh, you really come to see that character's love. Uh, well, for, my for daughter said last night when we were watching it together, she yeah. goes, um, she loves Harry more than she loves her own children. <laughs> she treats Harry better than she treats her own children. And the thing I always thought the thing that was so so sweet about her if this is true or not again i haven't read the books but i heard a, a story that the reason why she has so many sons is because she really wanted a daughter mm. yeah <laughs> so i think that is she, in there somewhere she kept having kids until she finally until she finally um, got to jenny got her jenny and 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 how does and talking about jenny like this is her movie huh like this is her 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 stepping into her formidable role as mm-hmm. like one of the more powerful witches uh, of her age, you know. Yeah, she's just so uh, you know I I you know she's she's kind of cool, Jenny. And you know, there's that whole uh, I don't know what what culture this comes from, but they say that the seventh child in a family is always the 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 special one, like the gifted one. And uh-huh. in the case of like fairy folklore. They're the fairy one, the magical one, and then I know she's the seventh child, and she's her, she's uh, Molly's favorite child, or something along those lines, and she happens to be this amazingly powerful witch. Her scenes are great, I thought, especially in the the what was it the the at the ministry where they go to the uh, mm-hmm. what yeah, is that place called? With the, all the, with the Department all the of Mysteries. Yeah, that one, the, which is such a cool name for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that scene, by the way. I yeah. think that's one of the cooler battle scenes. That whole sequence, I think, is really a really int- a re- it's always made an impression on me. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, it, jump ahead or anything. No, 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 that's fine. We could jump around. That doesn't. We're not like on a on a uh, a particular trajectory. Uh, right. Yeah, no, I love that scene. Uh, I think it's part of it is because it's so chilling because you have these like 
basic, very ghoulish figures with the masks yeah. and the capes and everything. You know, they appear out of, they basically appear like ghosts. They kind of like appear, they apparate and disapparate. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the uh, art direction, like the design of that space mm-hmm. is so, uh, is so striking. The, the stark darkness behind them and then illumination on the side by all the, prophecy i guess balls the crystal balls whatever those are by all the prophecies Mm -hmm. and the fact that you have these grown adults stalking this this group of small you know small children essentially uh inexperienced wizards being taken like it it's these these are basically magic nazis is what they are and so they're hunting a a group of teenagers who are still just learning to uh, to be able to fight back. And, and I think that's, it's, it's chilling in a way and also, you know, thrilling in, in another when the kids start, uh, start fighting back. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, it's a great scene. It's like, I don't know. It's like watching interpretive dance or something. It's just like a really powerful, powerful moment between the, 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 the Yeah. I just can't keep thinking about Jenny and her reducto and the stuff. She's mm-hmm. just so awesome. I think. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's great. You get a lot. You get a a, a lot more Ginny here than you do in, in definitely the previous four. She's just sort of a background character. But this yeah. is this is, this leads into six, which is where I think the Harry Ginny romance starts to kind of like seep into the rest of the story too, because right. they of course ultimately do end up together. Yeah. And again, I don't know how much the romances are fleshed out in the book, but I always kind of appreciated the fact that the romances never became the foregrounds of the story. Right. Like it's I think it's, you know, this is me being a mom and an English (laughs) teacher in the moment, knowing that young minds are reading these books and growing up with these books. It's it's comforting to see that the focus of these children's lives wasn't having relationships with each other they couldn't help but form relationships with each other because of the trials that they had suffered through together and that's more close that's closer to reality that's closer to how we bond with people in you know in reality i always just appreciated that it you know it resisted the temptation of becoming some type of sensationalized teen romance like you know a, what I mean? Like a Twilight or uh, yeah, and, or and even like, a Hunger I, Games where it becomes all about like who's Katniss going to end right, up with at a right. certain point. Like and I, I don't, I think that shameless teen romance or sensationalized, you know, sensational teen romance, I think that has value. I don't think there's a problem with it at all. I'm just saying I'm glad Harry Potter was not that. I'm glad that it re- remained kind of the hero journey. And that you know we got to we got to see ourselves reflected in all of these all of these characters you know you know and and we you know we knew that they were human and that they would have you know relationships with each other but it wasn't about that right yeah so. no I, I I like that as well I think it's especially the the um, the Ron and Hermione thing which. Mm-hmm is very sparingly kind of doled out over the course of eight movies that mm-hmm. it, it builds to them having that they don't even kiss until the eighth one, like the very, almost the end of it too. That is just sort of a, you know, they've grown up together. They're friends. They, they kind of had crushes on each other for years and it's just kind of, yeah, leads to that. Uh, but it's not the focus. I mean, when you're fighting dark wizards, I don't think you really have no, as much time right. for that anyway. So, um, so yeah, I like right. that the, the way that they capture sort of adolescent kind of young love uh, in these movies also. 
Uh, let's see. I want to talk about, well, I, we, we kind of talked about the, the tyrannical regime, essentially, the, the ministries is basically the magical government. Uh, Fudge denying, uh, <laughs> denying the existence of, of Voldemort's return. There's a lot of, uh, you know, they mentioned that he's twisted and warped by fear. It's very, yeah. in today's day and age when now gaslighting is, okay. is very much yes. a thing. Well, I- one of the things I liked about the film, I just sorry to interject, you no, were talking about all the things that were, you know, you were checking off all the boxes. Yeah, I uh, love the constant weaving in and out of the newspaper headlines and the mm-hmm. news stories, yep. and how like corrupt journalism, the you know, the basically the the state controlled newspaper, the ministry controlled, you know, stories. And how that has affected, like, even, you know, the the kids are sitting there reading the paper and Harry's all over it and all that. I I appreciated that, too. Um, I found that remarkably relevant, you know. And again, reinforcing that constant theme that this is what what an authoritarian uh, world looks like. You know, this is what has to happen for these things to occur. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It's just, I'm just saying, it's like, you know, it's like a little textbook example, teachable moment kind of thing. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's, um, it, it's definitely the part of the story where media and propaganda feel almost as vital a weapon as, as any spell in these movies. I mean, the, the, the influence that they're having, like you meant, you sort of mentioned that uh, Seamus Finnegan kind of has that confrontation scene with Harry where he's just like, Oh, why, yeah. why are you making this stuff up? He's like, Oh, because I saw it. And Dumbledore says it. Cause you said it, you know that. And, and then Ron has to kind of step up uh, to defend Harry. Like even the, the kids who are always on the same sides now are, are kind of divided as well, just because they're, you know, they're believing what they're reading or their parents are reading it and telling them, Oh, I don't know if you should go back to school because of this. Like it, it all feels very, <laughs> it all feels like shockingly relevant to everything right. happening, especially now with the pandemic where some people are like, well, you know, you got to wear your mask, social distance. And other people are like, eh, it's not that big a deal. It's a, it's a hoax or whatever. And there's varying degrees of belief happening. I think, uh, you know, and then the government's role in all of that right now. Uh, well, it, controlling it, oh, us by fear, right? right? Like he says, uh, he says the fear, which one of, um, is it Lupin that says he's being controlled? He, Lupin or, or Black? Yeah, fear. one of them says yeah, that. Yeah, you know that's that's so poignant. I mean, people are walking around, you know, not able to trust if their fellow, if you know, if their neighbor is under some type of mind control. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's that crazy. And when there's like, oh yes, it's you know, it's fear. Fear is controlling him. I mean, does he? Is he have like my my daughter and I talked about it? Is he under the imperious curse at that moment, or is she just saying that this is? Is she just commenting on this is how? This is how authoritarian rulers begin, because they're deeply afraid and they create an atmosphere and a culture of fear. And they, you know, what, you know, what's going on there in that in that moment. Yeah, and then I, the other thing that you were talking about was like the whole controlling of information and whatnot, and 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 I feel like to to not to not make it about too much about 
the current political climate, but let's just make it about being a kid. Mm-hmm. Let's just look at it as a as one step in the coming of age journey. You know, he's what sixteen. They're like sixteen at this point. Yeah, around there, fifteen. And I mean, like prior to this, like you know you have this whole building up of like the initiation into adulthood. And part of that is to uncover all of the untruths that you've been told your whole life. The things that were, you were supposed to just accept, you know, as reality, as truth. And, you know, that rebellious, I know we talk about rebellion being a theme in this. You should, as a 16 year old, you should question the establishment. You should be angry that you're being told to believe a story that you haven't yet been initiated into contributing to. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, you know, you're 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 not quite an insider yet. You're still an outsider by virtue of your age and your inexperience. But at the same time, they want you to believe them. You know, they want you to buy in the story. And if you don't buy into the story, then you're you know, then you're bad, then you're this, and you're un-American, or you're whatever the things that you're, you right. are, you know. And I think, you know, as a teacher, and having taught so many 17-year-olds and, and 16-year-olds over the years, I mean, I have seen a, prog- I, I've seen like a, like that manifest in so many different ways, but I expect and anticipate 16-year-olds to doubt me and it and and to doubt my credibility i anticipate that i have to earn that from them i wouldn't want it, that any other way do you know what i mean i'd mm-hmm. be suspicious of a kid who just bought everything i said you know and and i like the fact that in the story the children understand that the adult the adults are otherwise engaged and that there are some adults that are trying to protect them and to maintain um, all that's right and good. But they understand that it's time for them to step up and to right. decide what is true and what is right. And and as adults, we need them to do that. You know, and, and I don't know, like, are we have we enculturated ourselves in such a way that we've stripped children of any real meaningful productive way of doing that you know like what you know what what is it you know but that but that's important that's an important stage in in development and if you look at the whole story as that as a you know like a a coming of age thing it's that part of the journey where they just say okay we are alone and what we decide is true and right is what has to be true and right and I'm glad that they meet it with such, you know, all the all the kids meet it with such honest uh, intentions. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody's on nobody's on a power trip. Nobody's trying to like outdo the other, be the best, the baddest, the whatever. It's not about that. It's just like, yeah, like stuff is scary out there, and we have to protect ourselves. And it's kind of time to grow up around this. Well, the previous stories mostly center on Harry, Ron, and Hermione dealing with some mystery while their other friends were just kind of around in classes and things like that. And this is the first time that they all, minus uh, Malfoy (laughs) and his Slytherin buddies, I guess, but they all kind of get on the same page. They get organized. They they realize uh, for the first time just how on their own they are. And, you know, we mentioned the, the order is doing stuff, but uh, Sirius Black at one point says, you know, you, you're on your own for now. Uh, he says, 
Uh, you're the young ones now, which is basically the, the generational passing of the torch, which you see now, nowadays and everything, all these young people that are like protesting or whatever, you know, standing up for what they believe in, like now in the, in this current insanely divided time. Um, Dumbledore, again, we were talking about information. Let's not leave Dumbledore out of this. Yes, the fudge and and uh, the ministry is is controlling the newspapers and, and making sure that their message is getting out there. But at the same time, Dumbledore is not communicating with Harry at all. So he's holding information back as well. And he's, he even had uh, over the summer told her Ron and Hermione not to say anything. And, and so he's, even though he's on Harry's side, he's still not being truthful with him, not trusting him to take command or, or anything like that. Uh, there's also the other thing with the adults who have been through this before, which that's, that's the thing. There's a lot of references in this more than any of the other ones where, yeah, this was the team 14 years ago when, when Voldemort rose to power last time. Uh, there's that great scene that again feels very relevant where, um, Harry says, Oh, do you really think there's going to be a war? He says to Sirius and he sort of thoughtfully pauses and he's like, it feels like it did before. You know, you think back to previous generations who lived through, mm-hmm. Vietnam, you know, the Vietnam era when everybody was protesting and everyone is in an uprising and, you know, everything looks bleak for the future. And I feel like in some ways, some people feel like that today. And I think this this movie sort of captures how cyclical history can be in a way, too. Right. Yeah. I want to talk about, uh, well, we mentioned Luna a little bit. Let's talk about Luna Lovegood, who we meet here for the first time. What a great character she yeah. is. She brings so much to this uh, to this franchise uh, and to this film sp- specifically. And I think she's ex- an extension, first of all, an extension of Harry's own trauma because she's also witnessed death. Uh, and, and I think that's what do you what do you believe Luna Lovegood brings to the, the series here that was missing uh, in previous installments? Oh, I think she brings. Um, I think she brings a lot of like. I'm thinking archetypally here. Mm-hmm. I think she le- brings a lot of lunar to their solar. Like they are, you know, when it when I think about Hermione and how amazingly bright she is and how Apollonian she is. She's like a she's like Apollo the god. Like she heck she she's multifaceted. She can do anything, right? She's just amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And and but one of the things I always <laughs> liked that that the author did with her character was make make it so hard for Hermione to be intuitive to like uh, be psychic remember the experience she had in the divination class <laughs> yeah and Hermione's feeling that this is just you know this is rubbish. So <laughs> a- Hermione is so Apollonian right yeah. she's so scientific she's so cerebral she's solar she's very solar and Luna is like not just Lunar, she's like the dark side of the moon. Like she's, she is that. I don't want. She's not Dianic. She's like almost like, she's almost like the darker kind of goddess, the one who's walked the path of grief, the Hecate type goddess, the one who has come out of the underworld. She's like a, like you know how like there are gods in Greek uh, mythology that can go in and out of the underworld, but nobody else can. Like mm-hmm. Zeus can't even go in and out of the underworld. Uh, well, Mercury can, and and Iris can, and Hecate can, and they're called psychopomps. And like Luna to me is like a little psychopomp in the story. Like she's been to the dark places in the mind. She's right. been to the dark places of grief. 
And she's not just that she has come out, it's that she can go in and out. And I think that the wisdom, the emotional wisdom that and I, mean, I might be making so much more of her character, but I look at this again, I look at how they function um, as little representations of the collective, you know, little little myths. You know, I look at how they function as little myths, but mm-hmm. she brings she brings so much of what's necessary at that point in Harry's development in becoming the hero. Right. It's not just. You know, it's not just what you know, it's what you have to allow yourself to feel. You know, you have what you have to face in your emotional landscape and the darkness there. And she's openly navigating it. And you can call it PTSD, you could call it grief, you could call it mental illness. I think Luna is a representation of a really beautiful way of navigating those types of human difficulties or traumas. Right. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were, you know, they both had lost their mothers and, and all of this. And I, I just I just feel that without her, like her function as a character, like with without her there, that's like almost like a part of initiation for Harry to become like, you know, fully aware. Like you got to be right with your emotional landscape, you know, and he's pulling away the whole first half of the movie. He's allowing himself to be consumed in his own darkness He's pulling away. He's pushing away. He doesn't want anyone's help. All the things. And Luna just invites him to consider looking through the eyes of Voldemort when she says, well, if I were the Dark Lord, this is how I would want you to feel. Mm -hmm. You know? And I think that's like a really cool moment. Like, get dark for a second. Allow yourself to get dark. Get in touch with your inner demon, whatever that is. I don't think that's necessarily what she's saying, but I'm saying like on a psychological or a Jungian level, have that conversation with yourself. What would you do? You know, talk to your depression or whatever it is that's happening for you. You know, um, and so I think she just makes this amazing point to him and invites him to see it this way. I don't think he initially allows like I think I think it's like a it's at that point, right, that he comes back and starts the the starts Dumbledore's army. Yep. Right. I think right after they have that conversation, you know, so who of his friends would have been able to do that for him? Mm-hmm. You know, there's really I mean, well, I think I think because she well first of all she's basically a light in the dark for harry but who yeah who who feels like because of what he's witnessed because of what he's endured you know his past tragic past to baxter with his parents the, the witnessing uh cedric's passing um this movie in, in a lot of ways is about trauma and how you respond to it i mean not only harry but luna and neville and um and his, you know, how his parents were were killed by uh, by Bellatrix, or driven mad by Bellatrix Lestrange, and um, you know, there's a lot of the story as you're mentioning where Harry is very much on edge. I mean, he like flips out on Malfoy in the first, I don't know, ten minutes right. of this movie. He's just so many times where Harry's like, "Oh, they should leave you alone." He's like, "Yeah, I said I'm fine." He's like, very, uh, he's very ready to snap at any moment basically which again is very much a, a teenage thing where you're still processing your emotions you're trying to feel feel yourself out but i think harry at this point feels or worries that he may be damaged that he's like he says that probably my favorite scene in the movie with him and Sirius black where he's like you know after everything i've been through what if i'm going what if i'm becoming bad he says because he's like yeah i am so angry all the time which is this quote that i reference 
often, especially being with a toddler who's very irate <laughs> many much of the time uh, and throwing tantrums. I, I think I've sort of misappropriated to Prisoner of Azkaban, but I, it's, it is in this movie, in that scene. And I think this is the movie where the Harry Potter franchise sort of makes peace with the fact that it, we aren't just all, you know, all one thing. We're not good. Like he said, they're not good right. people and death eaters. And it's right. about achieving that balance. I had um, I had Carrie Jones on the show uh, last year to talk about The Last Jedi, which is very much about that whole thing, finding the balance, the light and the dark. You know, Sirius tells Harry there's light and dark inside of us. What matters right. is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. Right. And both and both stories allow, you know, function to allow the audience to be okay with their own complexity and yeah. to explore it. Um, and I, um, I think that that's very, I think that's kind of very symbolically played out in the, in the confrontation, you know, at, immediately after the, 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 the confrontation between Dumbledore and uh, Voldemort, when Voldemort clearly understands he's not going to best, Dumbledore in like wizard combat he you know does the thing where he evap evap whatever whatever it is they do turn themselves into <laughs> disapparate that. I think yeah. yes and then he enters he you know he he goes inside of him man he's freaking invades him you know, know. it's very it's, it's a very it's gross man. it's just gross what's happening and and you know immediately and I love the way this is this is the, the direction behind this I thought was very beautifully done you know he he begins to show he, he obviously takes control over Harry's consciousness and we see the build up to that right we see that going on between him and Snape mm -hmm. and the whole showing of the memories and we know that it's kind of like here it is at, at the at the pinnacle this is the climax of that psychic battle they've been having this whole time and um, you know he's controlling Harry's psyche and, and he's flooding his consciousness Full of the worst things he's ever seen in his life, yeah. right? Just death and murder and all of it, just the worst things. And he's and he and it's cutting back and forth, and he's laughing, and he's and and then it shows another horrible scene, and it's just some dark, gross stuff. And uh, but all of it's true. He doesn't show him anything that didn't actually happen. It all happened. It was all true. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the moment where Harry is able to gain enough perspective just to be able to see Ron and Hermione enter the room and Jenny. And then his consciousness begins to counter with the memories, the good memories, you know, the, the, the friendship memories and the, the laughing and all of that. And all those things are true, you know. So we're seeing visually represented that this is the complexity of Harry, right? Mm -hmm. Like these amazingly dark moments of horror and grief, and these amazingly wonderful moments of happiness and supreme joy. Those are all things that are simultaneously existing. And he chooses where his focus is in that moment, you know, and I, I find that, that that's such a powerful scene where, you know, he meets, you know, be, being like the confronting of the two psyches, you know, Voldemort and Harry, and Harry gets to look inside Voldemort and feel compassion for him. Mm -hmm. That's, that's 
that was good stuff. I thought that was one of the. I thought that was an amazing moment, and I think Daniel Radcliffe played it like a boss. I thought it was great. You know, I, think, I feel sorry for you. Yeah. I believe him. I believed he was compassionate. I totally. I was like you. You have never known love like that that awareness that wow and again going back to the coming of age story and when do we reach adulthood you know when we can you know what what is that you know what what is that what does real emotional maturity look like you know like what 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 happens in that moment when you can look at somebody and through all this crap that they're doing and see just how wounded they actually are. And instead of having the urge to kill them and rage at them, you just have compassion for them. It's just, I mean, that's a lot. That's a big thing. People don't, that's not a natural go-to for most of human humankind. That's something we, we have to really let ourselves feel. And I thought that was a, one of the more, most beautiful scenes in any movie not just any harry potter movie i think it's also for a movie franchise as huge as this it's also kind of a ballsy move to have the climax of your movie take place within the hero's head (laughs) essentially yeah because that is that is as you're saying that's the moment that the the ending of the movie hinges on but before that you get all the battles and you get all that fun stuff you know uh uh, Dumbledore and Voldemort throwing fire and water and sand and glass and all this mm-hmm. other stuff back and forth and uh, and by the way I love that he calls him Tom to sort oh, of like yes. oh, like hell, hell yeah yes that was that was the <laughs> that was the baddest thing that was like you know the whole thing you got to give it give it up with for Dumbledore he sure has style when he shows up yeah, that's great. he doesn't just call him Tom he was like it was a mistake for you to come here Tom mm-hmm. it's so beautifully reductive it's great. And it then, strips all the myth away. I love it. Yeah. And that's, that's again, another, I think, goal of this movie. This is where uh, Hermione is traditionally the one that's like, we don't say, you know, she, she very pointedly says Voldemort's name in front of the other kids uh, in order to just strip that away and be like, Voldemort, this is, let's, let's just face Call what, it what it is. Exactly. Right. Instead of just like, oh, you know, that guy, we don't talk about him. Uh, right. Because that that was the, the beginning of the franchise. Everyone was like, he who must not be named, yeah. don't talk about him. It's, we don't know right. what happened. It's, it's we want to jinx it or whatever. Um, right. So, so yeah, I love the, the possession moment as well. Uh, I want to call out Nicholas Hooper's score because uh, that's the track that I, a lot of times when I, back in the day, would listen to that, the, that score. That's the track I keep going back to because I think it, it really... Uh, it really underlines that that moment and and the, the emotional power uh, it has. And um, let's see, I wanted to talk about. Well, we haven't gotten to uh, we haven't gotten to Umbridge very much yet. Oh we talked gosh, a little yeah, bit like, about her before the call. How badly we <laughs> want to talk about her? Well, because I I kind of feel like once we start <laughs> talking about her, she's going to take over the conversation like she took over Hogwarts. <laughs> that's why I was like, let's hold back on because that's a whole other thing. That's like a lot to unpack. So, yeah. um, so she shows up. We see her for the first time in Harry's hearing in front of the ministry, which again, even Dumbledore's like, "What is this? Now you need a whole like, there's a, a whole like inquiry for underage magic. Like this is a thing now. We're making a big deal out of this." Um, yeah. <laughs> so we see her there, sort of standing up for the ministry, and you know she's the undersecretary. Uh, what do you what do you think about Umbridge? Probably the I, uh, I would say certainly the first 
female uh, Harry Potter villain, but also one of the best uh, as far as scariest uh, of the group, even more so. I even I think I even had a note of this somewhere. This is a movie in which Helena Bonham Carter shows up as like this crazed uh, inmate of uh, Azkaban, completely unhinged, like nothing, like playing it as over the top as she possibly can. And yet Umbridge is way scarier than her. What What is that about, Amy? Right, right. Oh, man. Yeah, Umbridge is just the worst. Yeah, she is. What I mean, just the... And I love the the just the whole illusion of the pink the you know the mm-hmm. the innocence of pink and the the kitten plates and the the tea and, and all you know the the little british lady having tea every time i watch that film like i want to know who she is in jk rowling's life or what <laughs> group of people she represents because like when i see it i feel like in some way you know the author is kind of expressing that the people who are causing the most social unrest are the dolores umbridges in the Mm -hmm. world you know the uh the the you know i don't know if it's just the little the little the little ladies at tea or the the bureaucrat or you know whatever it is but clearly they are pretty scary you know i don't know she's she's such a unsettling unsettling character <laughs> she, she's got a kind of demented mary poppins thing going on uh-huh. which i think is is obviously part of it but then it's also right as soon as she literally can uh dumbledore introduces her in the great hall and then she just takes over and and uh she's talking about you know we must not have progress for the sake of progress we want to perfect what can be perfected and then right. talking about preserving, like it's very, it's very, it's, I mean, again, not not to get too political, but it's hard not to. She's, it's like intense conservatism, but like it melded together with that sort of gross reverence for government that she's like blind patriotism. We don't question things like she, right. she gets all, right. she, she even mentions disloyalty to McGonagall right. during that whole like one upsmanship moment that they have going up the steps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Literally. Right. Sure. <laughs> um, well, I, okay. So yeah, there's absolutely that aspect of her where she's represents that kind of blind patriotism, right. that, that allegiance to, to government and everything, but I'm not entirely sure that extends, you know, past a leader that doesn't align with her very, I guess, for lack of a better word, racist ideology. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear by the end of the movie that she's pretty, she's pretty much on the side of pure bloods, Mm -hmm. right? Right? Like, I'm going to assume she was in House Slytherin and I'm going to assume that her, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of what, what allowed so many wizards to rally around Voldemort was not necessarily that they found him charismatic. It's just that he supported their racist agenda. Right. You know, and they were already racist to begin with. Like yeah. you see oh, yeah. that you, 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 I, and again, I don't know if that's even the right term. I don't want to like be, you know, make light of the term racism, but I, I you know, the, whatever's going on inside that world between pure bloods and non pure bloods, you know, the supremacy that is, that is assumed of pure bloods. And you know, that's part of the film because we learned that about Sirius Black's mother, mm-hmm. 
right? And and the 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 fact that he, you know, all that drama that was going on and the things the creature says and all this stuff. It's like there, it's in, you know, it's in the 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 walls of the place. You know, it's where Sirius came out of. You know, that was the cultural culture. And I look at Dolores Umbridge and I see her very much the same way. You know, and so I feel like. This is a bunch of people that, you know, and this I'm kind of projecting too into like the later movies where you get to actually see all the Death Eaters and who right. they are. Um, and I kind of feel like, wow, they all look miserable. Um, they all look like they've regretted their decision. <laughs> but they all look yeah. like they got here because they believed that their ideology was true and right and that this was going to be the guy that got them what they wanted, which right. was to maintain the supremacy of being a pureblood. Right. And, you know, that's to me, like, so it's not just her, her blind allegiance to the minister, because I feel like it's more him she is, is allied to, mm-hmm. and not just the ministry in general. Yeah, like, I feel like she'd be one of those Nazis who was, like, really in love with Hitler, you know, like just as like him, him the man, not just him the Führer. Like right. he's a wonder. You know what I mean? Like she had, she. I always felt like she had that kind of energy for Fudge. You know, that was just like she just loved him too much. Kind One of thing in the McGonagall scene, she says like, "Oh, that means you're questioning the Ministry and <gasps> the Ministry. It's the Minister himself." And she like freaks out about it. Um, yeah, and she calls him Cornelius when yeah. she talks about him in like yeah. in an official context. She calls him Cornelius. So I was like, "Oh, that's kind of where she's." calling him Cornelius like he's the minister right you know uh, anyway. I, I do think Imelda Staunton is phenomenal in this movie I think yeah. she uh, because she's both terrifying and, and you know we haven't even mentioned yet the fact that uh her, her hobby of mutilating children, essentially, yeah. um, which again was why this is not in any way, shape, or form a children's movie anymore. It's just like it. She's completely sadistic uh, oh, with that. The, it, that, that line she says, and deep down, you know, you deserve to mm-hmm. be punished. Like that. That that was some dark six stuff. And you know, you know, there are children who have heard that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I, again, I can't imagine what occurred in J.K. Rowling's life where that, where she met that person or those persons, you know. And in that way, she serves sort of as a, a an agent of Voldemort's because I think it's after that happens, soon after Harry's like, maybe I should just go it alone. Like, I don't want to bring you guys into all this. And then eventually there's a scene later on where all of them are enduring that with her, her very special quill. Uh, but but she she finds she finds the way to make this character both horrific, but also like there's there's moments of dark humor as well. I think mm-hmm. with it that like when she she says in front of I think it's in the, her class where she's like oh the punishment will be severe and she does that little like shoulder thing like the way she yeah. says things yeah. the most like passive aggressive things so sweetly um, the little details like the ancient textbooks that she gives the kids. Um, for for the the defense against the dark arts class um her moment with snape where she's interrogating everyone and and she's like so you you wanted the defense against the dark arts post and you were unsuccessful and he's like obviously which is great um that was a great moment oh yeah it's so great uh it's also, I think, part of my my maybe my resistance to this movie, like in previous viewings, is that it's very whimsical in sort of weird places. Like when she's, huh. you know what I mean? There there are moments where they're putting Filch is obviously a hundred percent on Umbridge's uh, side here, and 
that he's he keeps hammering in those decrees on the wall and then the music is just like very like very yeah. and i think that threw me off i was like what tone is this movie going for it's like well, is this I think supposed to be funny doing is also yeah i think all the stuff that she's doing where she's like you know changing the culture of the school yeah all that is um you know counterbalanced with the scenes of the kids but and you know in the room of requirement doing you know doing their their outlaw activities you know but that's happening concurrently or congruently right. with uh, the um, the umbrage decrees. There's also the uh, that we'll we'll get to that in a moment. But then you have there. I want to make sure we mention in the room of requirement where Harry says uh, he he really becomes a leader in this movie. We were sort of talking talking about it earlier, but I wanted to. And then we'll get back to the umbrage train where he says about how every great wizard started as nothing more than we are now, students. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was again feeding into the whole theme of the younger generation really kind of rising up to the to the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's two big umbrage things we didn't talk about so far. The firing or sacking, I guess, of uh, Professor Trelawney, which is where mm-hmm. it really cu- hits home just how sort of uh, unrelentingly cruel uh, Professor Umbridge is. What are your, are your thoughts on that scene and sort of where it fits on... Uh, Again, it's kind of in tandem with the McGonagall thing, I believe. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, that's that's a really, um, I think that whole moment was designed to show the entire student body that she had more authority than Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was her intent. It was to basically make him look pretty powerless in front of everyone and obviously to make her look like she had the authority, you know, to do this. And then, you know, he comes out there and pulls rank and knows that it's the last time he's going to be able to pull rank. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like this, you know, shortly after that is when he, they come and get him, right. Yeah. Get him. So, yeah, I think, I think in that, I think that was the purpose of that, you know, that scene was to demonstrate her authority. Um, and also, too, the idea of, again, <laughs> it, it go, her, the fact that it was Trelawney and that Trelawney is the divination teacher, you know, like just this idea that, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't important. I'm going to I'm going to sack this woman because, you know, this is a ridiculous art was, you know, just kind of like she's the least important. Right. You know, this, you know, again, just this whole I and I don't, I don't think that's what J.K. Rowling's saying. I just think it's just something about, you know the joke about being intuitive or being psychic or being able to tell the future or whatever, you know, laughing at that when ironically, you know, it would be good if you could, you know, (laughs) she's also the most, I think, emotionally vulnerable Trelawney. Like she's how she's not really going to be able to stand up for herself in the way that I'd like to see Umbridge try and get rid of McGonagall or, or, you know, or Snape or something like there'd be much more of a, uh, of consequences for that but Trelawney she's just like oh this like this crazy hippie that like looks at tea leaves eh, yeah get out of here that's what I mean like, yeah the she's, she, but she's teacher she's ridiculous she's divination's also, ridiculous you're ridiculous she's not gonna put up a you. fight too that's the thing she's right. like I can just step on this person um in a performative way to to assert my you know my dominance over Hogwarts and, and yeah, I think I it's 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 very it's kind of upsetting to watch but then also satisfying when Dumbledore comes out right uh, and her plan foiled like again she right. wanted to be able to to emerge the one 
victorious there. She's the one in power. And instead, you know, he says, well, and then, you know, she says, oh, well, that that's for now. You know, for mm-hmm. now you can do this. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, of course, she disbands all the student organizations, in, including, you know, the Dumbledore's army thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that's sort of coming together and, and it's also kind of leading back into the the whole idea of uh, this kind of regime or this kind of whatever government or however you want to authority figure that doesn't really want people congregating and thinking and trading ideas and that whole thing, uh, right. which I think is 100 percent accurate uh, to real life analogs. Well, you know, we were talking. You were we were talking about the relevance of it before, and we were talking about the whole motif of passing the torch. That that if we're looking at this as you know that this is a, an, another story about about humanity trying to maintain a world of you know freedom and democracy and and all of those things. You know, like so many other stories about trying to find the idea, you know, to try to find and maintain the ideal civilization, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so these kids are called to have to do this, you know, to have to decide for themselves what truth is and what they're going to fight for and sacrifice and all of these things. And you had talked about the, this, you know, we talked about the scene and the ghoulish, you know, death eaters that are like, you know, menacing them and, and kind of playing with them, but at the same time kind of recognizing, Hey, they kind of do know what they're doing a little bit, you know, they're not, you know, because obviously those death eaters showed up thinking they were just going to kick a bunch of kids butts mm-hmm. and leave. Right. Like they didn't, they didn't think those kids would, would really put up with a fight, you know, um, or put up a fight. Uh, and obviously they did. And that, and, and just to kind of draw parallels to what's going on today, you know, we have, and again, I've taught for a good chunk of time and I, and I feel pretty confident talking about, you know, we have as a culture, criticized young people for years for not engaging in society for burying themselves in video games or or social life or social media or whatever the case is you know the constant criticism i you know growing up as a gen xer i heard that a lot from the baby boomers you know like you guys don't you know you got you don't do any you watch you watch tv all the time you got you know you're privileged or this or that um and, you know, right now I see, and, you know, you'd mentioned this earlier, I see a lot of young people getting up and getting engaged, both in real space and time and in cyberspace. And I see the same group of people who complained for years that there was no engagement and how dare these kids not participate and just be on the receiving end of everything and just be privileged and spoiled and now it's like, oh, how dare these kids, you know, stand up and complain? Yeah. How dare they? How dare they say, we don't want this anymore? How dare they engage? You know, and and I just, I, it's like, well, you can't have it both ways. Right, exactly. You know? This is what, yeah. When when if when you want it, if you're going to ask, if you're going to demand that young people engage in their political lives or in 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 the political life of the culture of the society, this is what it looks like. It looks like progression. You know, it looks like moving things in a space you didn't necessarily anticipate because you didn't have the, the vision, the perspective that these group of people do by virtue of when they were born. Right. You know, and it's like when I relate this back to the story, it's again, it's the idea of these kids having to, 
you know, decide what's right. And what's right is, you know, being muggle born is right. It's no more or less wrong or right than being a pure blood. These things don't matter to us. We have decided this is how we'll live, you know, and that's what that's what's happening in the story, you know, and I think just that's what's happening in reality, you know, and, and there are a lot of Dolores Umbridges in um, systems of power all over the place. And we had talked about her being like the epitome of the Karen, you know, mm-hmm. the, there, there are a lot of Dolores Umbridges, you know, screaming and shouting because, you know, we're, we're changing the status, you know, we're not we, but the status quo is changing on them. Their opinion's not the only opinion that's being heard now. I don't know. It, it, it frustrates me because I think we should be glad that the uh, that young, that more young people are saying, "Okay, I, I want to have a part in this conversation." Yeah, it feels like the extreme extremity to which things have changed in the last few years here, but also in the story, I think it is ultimately what radicali- radicalizes the ch- the kids. Like in this movie, it takes umbrage. Who, who, and her oppression to essentially radicalize the children and have them be like, all right, we're going to start our own thing. We have to get ready. We have to get organized and show right. that we're, you know, that we, we pose a threat. Like you, like you said, right. uh, Lucius was like, oh, you, do you really think a bunch of children were going to had a chance against us? I'm like, but they kind of did for a minute there. I mean, yeah. they, they held their own. Whereas if Dumbledore's army hadn't been a thing that that would, they would have skipped right to just capturing all the kids with the exception of Harry and, you know, maybe Hermione. Um, Well, I, I always figured part of the, I mean, if there was like a master plan, uh, part of the master plan of Voldemort was for Umbridge to go and to subdue the children. mm -hmm. You know, if there was any part of her, if she had any part of the, uh, of the story was in fact in league with death eaters and with Voldemort, that would have been her role would have been to subdue and repress the children. You know, uh, so that there could be no uprising of any kind, right. you know. Um, but, yeah. Not exactly the way it works out for her. So, no. <laughs> Fred and George, who I think are seven, uh, they're in year seven, I think, at this point in the story. They are, like, about to graduate from Hogwarts, but they, they just figure screw it and they do the whole fireworks uh, display yeah, with the dragon away, right yeah they're just like eh, we're close enough whatever we're, we're gonna start our own business after this anyway so who cares right <laughs> so <laughs> we're gonna be independently wealthy so uh they that's what they do uh they do that whole thing so that's like part one of umber just comeuppance and then it leads into you know harry falls to his knees and has the vision of voldemort um you know kidnapping and interrogating sirius uh, we got a little bit of Snape who's sort of pissed with Harry because we did get glimpses at Snape's past. I think it kind of the yes. first little hint we get that, you know, yeah. maybe James Potter wasn't like the perfect person. Maybe he was a flawed right. human being like everyone else. Right. And don't you think that that kind of helps support the whole feeling that Harry has where he goes, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not good. Maybe I'm bad. When right. he sees his father being, you know, a little jerk. Yeah. You know, and, and feeling like, you know, the, the, the moment where kids have to kind of realize their p- parents are imperfect. Right. They're, there's dark and light in all of us, including Lily and James. I mean, well, Lily doesn't get much. Uh, my, it doesn't seem like she has any flaws, really, in these movies. I don't really think they get into that because Harry's always comparing himself to his dad. 
Sirius is always comparing him to his dad. He literally calls him nice one, James, when they're fighting. Um, right. So I, I think it's, it's Harry sort of being like, wait a minute. Like it recontextualizes things a little bit that maybe my dad was, you know, he did things that he, sh- you know, should be ashamed of and he should regret and things like that. And he wasn't, you know, everything that I'm putting on a pedestal. Uh, so, right. you, so you get that. And then Snape, uh, he, he kind of tells Snape encoded, like they have Padfoot at the place where it's hidden. And, and at this point, Snape is, well, I guess is throughout the whole series, he is where Snape is, you know, he's a good guy, but we don't ever, we don't always know if he's going to do the right thing. If he's yeah. gonna do, you know what I mean? So he gets that information. And when he says no idea, us as the viewers are like, is he going to help? Is he not going to help? Is he pretending that he doesn't like, I, I love that ambiguity that obviously kind of goes through until the last movie with Snape. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, it's probably why I'm like, I would have loved more of the, uh, the occlumency uh, lessons. Like, I, I think that in, if this is the longest of the books, I believe. And I, I just really wish they could have squeezed some more of that subplot. In right. It, like I, if there had been an extended version yeah. of the movie, that would be where, yeah. Um, so there's that. And then, so the other half of Umbridge's um, comeuppance comes in the, in the Forbidden Forest where Grop picks her up and, and the centaurs are coming after her and all that stuff. And, and we get the, the best, probably the most satisfying moment in the movie mm-hmm. where, where she said, tell him, tell him, Harry, tell him, tell him, I, I tell him I mean no harm. And then we get the reprisal of him saying, I must not tell lies. Yeah. Which <laughs> apparently, and, and I had forgotten this, my mom, my, uh, my wife had watched these movies with me, I don't know, like seven years ago or something. We've been together about almost, we've been together about 10 years. So, uh, she hadn't seen them until I showed them to her, all of them. So then like last year she read the book. So when we re- rewatched this last night, she was like, Oh yeah. And that line wasn't in the book. I must not tell lies when Harry says that. And then I, I was uh, very indignantly like, well, it should have been. Yeah. <laughs> it is so good. And it, and it really brings that into like a, I, I think when I saw this in theaters, like the crowd, like the people were like cheering in that yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, it's so great. I remember when this movie came out, it came out to such mixed reviews, like, you know, the, the, the fan base loved it and that, that was good and fine. But the, but the marginal fan base or whatever you want to call it, um, really had a hard time understanding the pacing of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that it took so long to get to any kind of like significant action scene, you know, that you really just had the kids warming up for the whole movie and then you had this little, you know, explosion at the end of everything happening. And um, I remember, I just remember people were really complaining about that. I don't, I never felt that as anything wrong or bad or uncomfortable as a viewer. You know, I, the the progress of the film made sense to me. I see what they mean, but at the same time. You know, a lot of it was it was psychological. It was a again, you know, we talked about him, you know, if if Goblet of Fire is the moment where his innocence is destroyed and the you know, the he's the proverbial hero at this point that has to descend into the underworld, then Order of the Phoenix is the underworld, you know, and so is so are the remaining books, essentially, until I guess he comes out with the mission of the Horcruxes where he comes out with purpose because the idea of the hero's journey is that the hero returns to his people, to his community, to his kingdom, whatever it is with some special new gift or purpose. 
And once they decide they have a plan, the stories feel different from that moment because they become almost like, you know, you know, they're all the little quests, the mini quests for the different horcruxes, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but right, but right now, for the sake of this story, I do feel like we've kind of been wandering through, you know, the un- you know the underworld, trying to find our way to some type of light. You know, in the previous movies, I think too, it's really more hair things happening and Harry reacting to things happening. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's there's this mysterious thing with a sorcerer's stone happening here. There's a chamber of secrets and people are getting petrified. Mm-hmm. There's this killer he on the loose who I, I guess is coming thing, after right? me. Yeah. Somebody put my name in the cup, like uh, at the triwizard tournament. Like it's all so him being put in a situation like the universe, whatever you want to call it, picking him up and dropping him in circumstances and him having to fight his way out. This is him being like, all right, all right. Gotta, this is clearly happening, so I need to drive the narrative going forward. And I think, through, through, like you said, with, through the rest of the stories, it really builds up to, okay, well, my goal is to take out Voldemort, and we need to make him mortal, we need to get these Horcruxes. And that's kind of like, he, he, this is the moment where he stands up and like, alright, I guess I'm the title hero of the story. I guess I need to like actually get my ass into gear, finally. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you something. You had talked about... Um Dumbledore earlier in the film, you know, how he is keeping a distance between himself and, mm-hmm. and Harry and how that's, you know, aggravating things for or frustrating things for Harry and, and whatnot. And we, of course, at that point, don't really know why Voldemort is staying, staying away and, and keeping wide berth. Um, do you think in that moment uh, where, you know, Harry is struggling at the end there with Voldemort inside of him, like the 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 the, the psychic battle that they're having, mm. and you know Dumbledore's kind of standing over them and kind and kind of like you know quietly coaching him. Like remember, it's not what it, what, what does he say? It's not it's not it's he's just. Do you remember the quote? What he says? I, I don't remember the quote. I know what you're saying, but I can't remember. Something yeah. about our choices. Yeah. Something it's, like that. It's not who we are. It's not who. Oh, it's not who. How you are the same. It's how you're. How you're not. How you're how different. You're, how you're not alike. It's not yeah. who you're like. It's how you're not alike. Right. Um, and then Harry is able to make the shift, and I almost kind of think was Dumbledore himself waiting to see what manner of man Harry was before he divulged what he knew. Because it's in the pre, it's in the movie after, right, where he sits him down and tells him, "This is this is what is going on. We need yeah. these hor, you know, this is a horcrux. This is what happened, right? They go and they get Slughorn and they find out all that stuff, right? right? He, he takes he him, lets on him the- in on the plan, and I kind of wonder in that moment if if you know, and I, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that Dumbledore didn't have didn't anticipate that Harry would be the right sort of person. But I do wonder if he needed to see for himself that Harry knew he was the right person. I don't want to say the right, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Like how much, how much, he, how much he could handle worthy. too, I right. think, because he said, like he says, he was wanted to spare him any more pain. Um, he's witnessed all, you know, Cedric Diggory getting killed in front of him, uh, his family life being torn apart, being tormented, living under someone's, his aunt and uncle stairs for like a decade. Um, so I, I think maybe he, maybe Dumbledore didn't want to 
overwhelm Harry with either purpose or knowledge. And maybe he was unclear on how much exactly Harry could take before he would break. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe to your point, maybe he was worried if he overwhelmed him or traumatized him too much right. that he would start to like, I don't know, lose grasp on, on who he is or something. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. It's always funny to me too, at the end of a lot of these movies, Dumbledore's listen, I'm sorry. I screwed up. <laughs> I should have told you this earlier. Like at most the end of most of these movies, he's like, yeah, Nicholas Flamel, he, he's, he's my buddy. He, we took care of that sorcerer's stone or like, here, yeah, there's a, here, this, the, the, the sword oh, of Gryffindor. Yeah. Like he's always like, listen, I should have just given you up front what was going to happen because people have written essays about (laughs) how Dumbledore is trash and has essentially done nothing but bring misery to Harry Potter. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think that there is an argument there. I I think he, he clearly has good intentions, but Mm -hmm. he's just as, like I was saying earlier, he's keeping information from Harry too. Well, and I, and I think that's part of the opinion. You, know, you had asked me initially about how I felt about the, the Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. I am intrigued with Dumbledore as a character. I want to know how he is complex. Mm-hmm. Like, I I have always, in, you know, because I think that, I think both actors played Dumbledore really well. Um, and I, 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 what is his name? The second Dumbledore, Michael something. Michael Gambon, yeah. Yes. Uh, I just think he is wonderful. And I... I've always thought there was like an implied complexity there. There was so there's more to that. He always played him like there was so much more to Dumbledore than Dumbledore was ever showing us. Right, for sure. You know, um, and uh, there's almost kind of like a trickster quality to him that I always really liked. And when I learned that Fantastic Beast was going to ultimately kind of evolve into a story that was a prequel, you know, about the formative years of Dumbledore. I mean, I got really excited. Like I, you know. I, I want to see some complexity in that character. I know that I know he's seen some stuff. He's been through some stuff. Like that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what evolved from the stories, uh, from the movies. But uh, anyway, yeah. The 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 you know to, I just want to bring up that moment again where they come in and they they come to get him, and mm-hmm. he's like, oh, he's like, oh, you know, I have no intention of uh, what's the phrase. Come quietly. Come quietly. <laughs> and he just like disappears and is like, oh, he's such a boss. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing. And that's when Shacklebolt is like, you may not like him, but Dumbledore's got style. Like Dumbledore yeah. is such a fun character because right. like what you said, you never know. Like, you don't know what the hell he's going to do. He always seems right. like he knows everything. He arrives at the at Harry's hearing. He's like, oh, uh, you know, Fudge says, um, oh, so I, I, I guess you got our message that the hearing got moved. He's like, oh, it must have gotten lost. But it yeah. just so happens I ended up at the ministry three hours early. Yeah, by a happy accident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like that, just that kind of guy that just he, right. he somehow knows everything. Right. Um, in one of the previous movies, uh, Harry, uh, the Weasleys rescue Harry, Ron and Ron, Fred and George, I think, rescue Harry and bring him to the Weasleys house. And Harry's letter gets there, arrives there. And they're like, oh, uh, Dumbledore must know you're here. <laughs> it's just like he's just, um, yeah, consents things or, or whatever. I, I think that's yeah, he's so much fun. Um mm-hmm. I wanted to also mention a couple fast things, and then I guess we can start wrapping up. Uh, I do love the, we, we mentioned earlier how the romance thing never really comes to the forefront, which I think is good. Uh, the conversation with Cho Chang and Harry about Cedric. I really love that scene. I think it's, it, there's a tenderness there. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there, the, the, I think the moment I really like is she's saying, 
um, she's like, oh, you know, I keep wondering, like, if Cedric knew this stuff. And Harry's like, Cedric did know this stuff. Cedric was really good. Like, you know, you kind of see that the, the, those characters in, in a little bit of a different context. Uh, yeah. I, I do. I really love that, that we get a little more of Cho's sort of, um, I don't know, longing, sorrow, whatever of Cedric's right. passing. Oh, well, I think it's it's also speaks well of Harry that he's willing, you know, even as much as he likes her, mm-hmm. his ego is not so much that right. he can't sit and let a girl, you know, grieve a little bit and comfort her and, you know, and speak well of the guy that she really liked. I mean, you know, he could have been a jerk and quickly just changed the subject. He could have said, yeah, <laughs> this cool guy again, know Jeez. Know that. you know, if he didn't yeah. know how to do that would have been cool, you know, but yeah. he's like. You know, he respected Cedric and, you know, he he's a you know, Harry's a good kid. It's it was a it was the it was an emotionally it was a it was the good thing to do it was an emotionally mature thing to do in that moment. You know, and then I you, think. you get the follow up, you get the joke with Harry with uh, Ron where Harry's like, I think she was crying and Ron being like, were you that bad at it? <laughs> and then Hermione's like, oh, just because you have the emotional <clears throat> the emotional range of a teaspoon. Right. About how Cho Chang's feeling, like the the complexity in adolescent girls, and and yeah, I mean, and adolescent yeah, boys. Her, like to go like outlines the emotional state of Cho, and and I love Ron's like no one can feel all those things. <laughs> They'd explode. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's really that's really great. Um, and then the last thing is that I I always felt like Sirius's death is really abrupt in the movie and so so mm-hmm. almost to the point that you don't really register it i feel mm-hmm. like and this is just the the difference between the media i think between the medium of, of book and movie but i always feel like the book gives it more time to breathe and again that's just because they she's able to describe it in you know a couple pages or whatever uh but that i i feel like that in some ways gives a minor disservice to the character because it just happens so quickly that you don't and i know that's the point but mm-hmm. how do you feel about Sirius's death in, in the movie? Do you think it, it's effective? Because I love the moment yeah, after when he chases I her. But I, I think I think the suddenness of it is really impactful. I mean, I think that that I mean, I think that that's I, I think that's probably death. You know, that that's mm-hmm. what it is. It's like you're here first one minute and the next minute you're not. Yeah. You know, and I think it almost kind of like is a little. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's intentionally reminiscent, but you know, when Luna talks about her mom and she was like, she was working on something and she just exploded Yeah, and she blew herself up, you know, and it just had, you know, it was just like, boom, it was done. It was over. And I, I think it's, a, it's, it's amongst all the fantasy that's happening all around us. It's probably one of the more like realistic moments, you know? Yeah. Um, but and it's also felt like kind of almost like a Game of Thrones kind of moment where you expect this character is going to stick around and like be part of the landscape for a while. And and you almost kind of let yourself feel happy for Harry, knowing that he's going to have like a parent, you know, home. But nope, like when all nope, this is over, we'll be a proper family. Not so much. Yeah, when all this is over. We'll be a proper family. Right. And that's no, that's it's a good dream. Yeah, but it wasn't a reality. Yeah. And um. Yeah, it's again. This is just dark. The whole thing. The yeah. whole, it's a. It's a. It's a dark it, part it, of the journey. It's the now from the last one. I mean, uh, just to 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 
circle back a second. I, I, I like that, you know, we mentioned, you mentioned about Harry respecting Cedric. That was a big thing that I mentioned on the, uh, I talked about with my brother on the last episode that I love that those characters clearly have a mutual respect and, and sort of a friendship, even though the circumstances are pitting them against each other. I mm-hmm. think that that's a really, a really a great way to tackle that, that relationship between Cedric and Harry. But then also uh, here with Cedric's death in, the, in that movie and now Sirius's death here, it just becomes now Harry Potter tradition for every book to end with a major death uh, or every movie, I should oh, say. Right. I see. Yeah. He, Cedric, Sirius, spoilers for people who haven't seen yeah. somehow, Dumbledore, and then even Seven, which, which is the last book split in half, uh, Seven ends with uh, Dobby's death. And Snape. Well, no, Snape dies in eight. Uh, eight, the book right. of the movies i mean the books yeah the book yeah the book is okay. just uh forget it it's just crazy right. <laughs> uh, there's lots of dead people which uh, you know props to jk rowling for giving that story the stakes that it needs uh that it deserves because it could have right. been e- it would have been very easy for everyone to emerge from the battle of hogwarts it's like yeah oh, every, oh, everybody's okay cool yeah. Yay, we won. You know, um, so I think it, it lends it a lot more weight that way. Um, is there anything about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we mentioned? Probably talked about it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to say. There's a lot to going on in this movie, which yeah, I think y- y- a lot to unpack too, which is why. Well, and we, also too, I want to tell you that you know yeah. when we when we went when we talked about the witch, you know, prior to talking about the witch, I. I watched that movie and I was like very enthusiastic in, in my rewatching of it and I found that this movie was a lot harder to watch enthusiastically um, it was you know I had to really make myself stay with it and really focus on it um, and I, I think it is because it, it, it does just address head on so many mm-hmm. really difficult aspects of of humanity, you know, all in one. It's 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 is rough, you know. It's the if uh, it's the 2020 of the Harry Potter. Yeah, it, it hundred. Yeah, Harry it, Potter saga, you know. Very much, very much. It so does it make you? You know, you we were talking. You were talking about how you had seen it before, and then you came back and saw saw it, and it was like a different experience. And I, I, I it's like. It remind it was very it reminded me of reading Orwell you know like I've read Orwell for years I used to teach Orwell Animal Farm and 1984 and I taught it for years and when I started reteaching Animal Farm uh, in the in the last four years it's been such a profoundly different experience because um, well because of current things that are happening right right and this episode really does kind of feel Orwellian for me. Like it doesn't end on any kind of optimistic note. Right. You know, it doesn't. I mean, did you think it was? Do you feel like it was optimistic? I mean, I feel like it was just. We were just kind of like in the eye of a storm. Um, you know, it it it's optimistic, in the sense that, you know, the the good guys are gearing up for a fight. It's optimistic in that sense okay. in in the way that you know reading the headlines these days and then finding out that oh these people are protesting and these people are like starting a, you know like they're trying to fight back like that there is resistance to that uh that it's optimistic in that sense but mm-hmm. other than that i mean yeah it's it is pretty bleak throughout and i think it's yeah. just one of those things that when i saw it at a much younger age i it, it just felt it, it, i don't know it just felt like such a tonal shift from even the you know from even the last one 
Um, just because, like you said, you are in the belly of the beast here and you are living in a world where, you know, uh, magic Hitler has returned, but yeah. the world doesn't want to face that. And so nobody's nothing's being done to stop it. It's just like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Magic Hitler. Sure. You're lying. You're making this up. We're going to silence you. Uh, meanwhile, magic Hitler, Voldemort is, is <laughs> gathering his forces and, uh, you know, getting stronger all the time. So I think it's, right. It, it well, ends he, on a bit of an optimistic note, but it takes a while to get there. Right. But you don't feel any sense. I don't, you know, you don't come away thinking, oh, I can't wait till that story picks up. Like, you know, you're going to come back because you are committed, you know, but it's not like the previous ones where you're like, oh, what exciting adventure waits now? You right. know, you're kind of like, oof. How are they going to do? How are they going to pull this yeah, off? What's yeah. What's next year going to be like? <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, that's people will have that to look forward to next month as I'll talk about. Actually, my wife is going to join me for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Oh, so nice. that, that should be a, a, a fun conversation. But yeah. in the meantime, Amy Otero, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Oh, I am on Instagram as Amy Otero. Just Amy Otero. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming back. I know we, we need to talk about The Wicker Man. We will definitely do that next yeah, time. Anytime. I, I appreciate anytime. you, you coming on and helping me with the, the Harry Potter series and looking at this. Next time people hear you, we will definitely talk about the original Wicker Man, which I've never seen. So that would be an interesting. Uh, OK, well, listen, there's two, you know, there's a there's a there's a theatrical and there's a director's cut. <laughs> OK, so I should ask you. So which one are we good? Do you want to talk about? Well, listen, I've been watching the director's cut for years. And then I went and watched the one on Netflix, which is the theatrical cut. And it's still, I mean, it's, it, there is some information that's left off, but I, I mean, I guess I would start, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you'll have to think that over and let me know. Okay. And then we'll, we'll definitely reconvene at some point soon to talk about that. All right, man. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. <laughs> have a good Take one. Bye-bye. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs> <laughs>